Uh, Lois and I have been um, uh, decluttering this summer. Well, that was the intention. It's, I discovered it's harder than you think. Well, the first bit's quite easy because you get rid of all the actually stuff you never knew you had, but really you don't want. And then you get to the books and the clothes. If you've been there, some of you, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's really, really hard. And last summer, oh, oh, summer holidays, we read a book by a Japanese lady on decluttering. And she said, what you have to do is to take each item of clothing or each book and you place it in front of you and you say, thank you so much for what you've given to me. I really appreciate what we've had together. And now I'm going to pass you on to somebody else. And it's a sense of farewell and goodbye. And apparently it brings you a great sense of freedom in your life from the things you're throwing away. Well, I went to do this with my books in my study because I've got rather a lot I wanted to get rid of. And the first book I picked up, I was just saying thank you to it and realized I had never read it. <laughs> and uh, so, so I thought I'd, I never got past the first book because I sat down. I thought I'd better have a browse at this book. And it's a, it's a great book um, by a guy called Wayne Cadero, who's a pastor of a church in, a large church in Hawaii. It's the sort of place you don't feel called to, you just go to. And uh, he's pastoring this church. And when he got there, he found that there was a, a, a competition that went on between different uh, churches in the island of men in canoes. This is all in the introduction. And um, he got this group of men together. There's about eight of them, I think. And they all had to get in this canoe. They were going to practice. So he said, I'm gonna, we're going to race from here to the end of this, whatever it was, a few hundred yards. And I want you just to paddle as fast as you can, see how quickly we can do this. So they all got in the boat, and they were paddling like absolutely mad, and they had to paddle on both sides. So every time they put the paddle over, they'd hit the man in front. And people got bruised and cut, and uh, they got to the end of this piece, after a minute and a half, absolutely exhausted. So he then said, we need to train properly. So he then taught them, in the ensuing days, uh, how to paddle, that they need to paddle one side and the other. But the most important thing was to look at the guy in front of you and try and go in sequence with him. And he said, your job is to serve him to make it easier for him. And I don't want you to try hard, just go very gently. After four or five days, he said, let's do this again, the same stretch of water. And you ought to do it like as a Sunday afternoon out. You're not to strive, not to struggle, just to go at an easy pace. I'm hardly going to time you. So they got in, they rode this thing and they took half a minute off their time. And he said, when he, and, 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 and nobody was out of breath at the end, no one was even tired. And he said, when he looked at this, he realized this is the sort of church he wanted, not of canoeists, but he wanted a church where everybody was doing their bit, serving one another, where nobody got tired and weary because everybody was working at their thing. And he set out, to run a church uh, called that. It's called this book, Launching Effective Ministries Through Teamwork. You can have it if you like, because I will be saying goodbye to it this afternoon <laughs> and welcoming it into a, a new home. Uh, this summer, we've been, we're looking at the whole series of one another's. And uh, well that's me de decluttering, by the way. And uh, many people join a church because they actually believe that when they get into the church, it's wonderful because you're going to have your own sort of social workers and personal workers and the leaders in the church are basically designed and have been to college to learn how to look after you. They will visit you when you're sick. They will come to your home when you have any need. They'll pray for you at any time. They're available to you. That, of course, is a complete misunderstanding of church. The church is basically a community of people who sort of look after one another, care for one another. They do all these things. This is the New Testament 
some of the New Testament actually instructions to us to accept one another, to be kind to one another, forgive one another, carry each other's burdens, submit to one another, love one another, uh, encourage one another. We had that last week. Serve one another. In other words, it's a, it's a self-serving, self-helping group of people. It all happens within ourselves, within, within the body. And that's already happening this morning. You can tell that. And the fact that I'm standing here speaking to you is the easiest thing in the world because I'm being served, or we're being served, by a whole stack of people. Julian welcomed us through the gate. Otherwise, we'd never have got through that massive gate down there. He's waiting there now, probably. I don't know, unless you come in here, Julian, uh, serving us. Somebody, David, welcomed me on the door. He gave time to do that. Uh, people were serving. A dot was on this door. She gave us an outlook. Catherine has been on the PA. Uh, she tell, said she's going to turn it off if I speak badly, but okay so far. And you know that, I mean, Gregor McLaughlin, for example, is there week after week after week, and nobody actually noticed there's them, unless there's a squeak and a bump or something goes wrong, and then we all turn around and stare at them. <laughs> and Hillary's on the PowerPoint, and somebody else has put the chairs out, and someone's put all this out, and someone will put it away again after, and I have no idea who they are. And Ben will play the music, and lovely uh, Melody and others will... will lead us in worship and and they all done all these people are happening and doing stuff and that's made it possible for me to stand up and speak because a whole mass of people are serving do we need more people to serve yes can you imagine if four to five hundred adults in a church like ours every single person was serving in some capacity everybody would be doing their bit and nobody would be out of breath that's what it's entire that's what it's about this is fantastic it could be even better and in my life as in yours You've had examples of people serving you in a remarkable way. I remember soon after we came to Birmingham, we moved into a house in School Road in Moseley. And we, Lois and I were involved in a tour. We were touring the Midlands, 52 places, do, putting on an evangelistic musical all around the Midlands. And there's a guy on our group who came with us um, called Chris. And he noticed that w we didn't have much money, and in our house we had no central heating. And he came in night after night after night, and he completely fitted our house out with a complete central heating system for no cost at all apart from the parts. Why? Because he learned to serve. That's what he did. He saw a need and he did it. I remember many years ago when I was, uh, we were leading Riverside with others and I was traveling a great deal. And Alistair Barr came up to me one day and said, I don't know how you do all this driving. I said, I don't know either. I'm really tired out. He said, I love driving. Can I drive you? And for many, many years, you probably don't know this, Alistair Barr drove me all over the place. We had a huge amount of fun. He knows the tea shops of Britain like nobody else. <laughs> we, had, we just had a great time. But what an incredible service that was. A few years ago, three years ago, my father died. He was in a, had dementia. He was in a home in, in Orkney Islands. And the, and the hospital rang me. The home rang me one afternoon and said, Nick, um, your dad's dying. And I didn't, don't think I told anybody, but Andy Mackey found out about this. And he rang me, and he said, Nick, I'm, I'm going to drive you to Orkney this afternoon so you can see your dad before he dies. I could not believe that anybody would do that for me. In the end, I rang the home, and they said, he's only got a couple of hours. We wouldn't have got past Manchester in that time. It wasn't worth going, so we never actually went, and I never saw him after that. But I remembered that. And that's because Andy Mackey is a person who I've known for many years, who is a servant at heart. He looks for things to do, and he serves, and he served me in that way. And I will never forget that. And you've had the same. People who have just given their time and their energy uh, to serve you. 
And it's st- the story starts with Jesus, of course. He lays down, he, la- he lays down the gauntlet to us. Remember in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples come to him and want to know who's going to be the greatest. Well, actually, it was their mother, really, who was causing the trouble. And she inspired them to ask this question. He said, look, you've got it completely wrong. He said, it's people in the world who are all asking to be the greatest. Why? Because they want people to serve them. They want power over people. He said, you've got it completely wrong. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the servant. He said, look at me. I've come amongst you as one who serves. I'm a servant of all. Paul showed it you know, in Philippians where he said Jesus was not only a God, he became a man who became a servant. He says, I've come to serve you. That's what leadership is about. That's what living is about. And then you get that amazing story in John 13 where Jesus, this, he's got a few things on his mind at this point, you have to say. He's going to the cross. This is the last time he's going to meet with his disciples. And he comes into this room and notices no one's washed their feet. So he gets a towel, he puts it around his waist and he starts to wash their feet. It says, of course, of him that he knew where he was coming from, he knew where he was going, so he felt utterly secure. He felt very self-secure in who he was, so he could do it. He didn't think, oh, this is a bit beneath me, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm God, after all, for goodness sakes, I don't wash feet, I die on the cross for people. He did it because it needed to be done. And he said to the disciples these words, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the master greater a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. It's not beneath you guys. Just do it because it needs to be done. I remember many years ago, Lois and I, well, we still know this lady. Uh, she was married to a celebrity, a household name, and she's become very well known herself, in fact, through her writings. And uh, she travels all over the country speaking at various things. And she told us, in, I think the only people I think she's told, actually, uh, she said this, in my church... I go into the church on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week before any of the staff come in and I clean the toilets. And nobody in the church knows that I do it. So why on earth do you do it? Because I want to show that I'm not, it's not beneath me. I do all this traveling and people think I'm wonderful, but I need to tell God I, nothing is beneath me. I'm willing to serve at that level because I want to show that I care. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 gives this amazing example of the body of Christ. He talks about the church as a body, like a human body. And and many of you have read that, 1 Corinthians 12, and he gives us lovely pictures of, humorous pictures actually, of the ears and the eyes and the nose and the the hands and the feet. And uh, in that he's basically saying the human body is an incredibly serving agency. Every part of your body is serving the rest of your body. No one part of your body is doing what it does for itself. It is totally integrated. And of course, you take it for granted. You don't realize that's happening until it goes wrong. A friend of ours who we were with last week, um, he's just a bit younger than me, half his diaphragm has stopped working, but probably because of an accident, he said, although they don't quite know why. Now, he's never met his diaphragm. He's never spoken to it. He's never thanked it. He's never been even aware of it. He didn't even know he had one until <laughs> he looked it up in a book and found out what it did. But it's been working jolly well for 65 years. Unbeknown to him, it's just got on and served everything else in his body by making his lungs go up and down, and now it isn't. Not only can he not breathe properly, he can't do very much properly. My next-door neighbor broke her leg, and uh, she's never taken much interest in her legs, apart from the fact they get her around, and now suddenly she can't get around, she has to sit in a chair all day. I woke up on January the 1st this year, my hands, both my hands were completely swollen up. And for a month, I couldn't, I couldn't open a tube of toothpaste. I couldn't unbutton my shirt. I, I couldn't open the milk. It just hurt me too much. 
And I never realized before that my hands were not serving themselves. They had been serving the rest of me and I couldn't do these things because they weren't working properly. Fortunately, you'll see they're functioning a great deal better um, at the moment. But that's how the body works. And Paul says that's what the church is intended to be like. So when, when part isn't doing its thing, everybody notices it. Everybody is aware of the fact it's not quite like it ought to be because somebody's not doing their thing. But the body is a self-serving organization. And the assumption that, that, that Paul makes is that God has put in the body every single gift necessary for it to function well in such a way that nobody has to do too much. I don't actually like the term volunteer very much because there's nothing in my body that is volunteering. And it's all just doing it because that's what it does. That's what it's made to do. The orchestra is another very good illustration, and some of you who have been here a long time will have heard me say this before, but I do know quite a lot about this because I've been in an orchestra. As a young man, I, I played the piano for till grade two, I want you to know. Um, <laughs> but my left and ha right hand never coordinated, so we never got beyond that. So my music teacher thought I ought to uh, take up the cello. So I played the cello for a month or two, and then I tried the clarinet. Uh, he tried me on that, and then that wasn't working. He thought, there's got to be some talent somewhere in this guy. <laughs> so we, I, he gave me a French horn to play. Now, you need perfect pitch for the French horn, but I played this French horn for many years. In fact, I played in our orchestra at school. In fact, it was the second orchestra, and I was the third horn. <laughs> Just in case you're worried, you don't get any lower than the third horn. There, there is no fourth horn. But I read the other day, this is very interesting, I read the other day, someone has just written a thesis on the value of the third horn to the orchestra. <laughs> it's true, it's a university thesis, just been written. But I can remember vividly, and, and if you're a third horn, this is basically what you do, I'll just tell you, you count for about 60 bars, you have to learn to count, because boy, if you miss it, there's not going to be much coming after that. And you go, you go basically, ba bum ba bum 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 That's the same in every piece of music. And I, remember, I can remember as if it was yesterday, sitting in this hall at school, thinking this is a complete waste of my time. So I'm just sitting there, I think I'll just mouth this. I'm going, I just don't even make any sound. And the guy who's in charge, a lovely little guy, and, uh, and uh, he suddenly went, stop, where's the third horn? <laughs> Cuthbert, you're the third horn, aren't you? I said, yes sir, yes sir. Why didn't you play? I didn't tell him because A, I don't play the right notes and B, I wasn't quite sure whether it was worth it. <laughs> he said to and I remember him saying, this is, can you imagine, this is a little story, can you imagine Beethoven has written this symphony and he's thinking to himself, it's not working, it's not working, it's just not right. He goes to sleep at night, he wakes up in the night and he has a, a vision of the night, the third horn. If we put a third horn part in, it'll be perfect. The next day, he scribbles it out. He wrote... Fantastic, brilliant. And now you, Cuthbert, <laughs> think he got it wrong. That it was a waste of a dream. It was better off before he ever thought of the third horn. Let's play it again and you will play the third horn part. Wrongly maybe, but you will play it. <laughs> I told this story once, many years ago, and there was two people in the front row who were laughing more than they should have done, and they were the lead horn players in the Halle Orchestra. <laughs> so I, th they did talk to me afterwards about that. But I, I learned something from that, that the third horn in the second orchestra better play his part because it makes the music sound right. Jesus said there's people with different levels of talent and gifting, some ten, some five, some one. He said the trouble problem 
It's not with the gifted people, highly gifted people. It's the one-talent people who don't think they've got a talent. They got, think they've got nothing to share, and so they hide it away. And then it doesn't get used. It's like the third horn who won't play. And then, just to get to this passage that, w- that was read to us just now, um, two things I just want to draw out of this passage. The first is this. Paul makes this point at the beginning. Whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in, his various, in its various forms. In other words, Jesus is say, uh, Peter is saying here that what you have are gifts in the sense that there's nothing you have that is, is yours. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. It's a gift. It's been given to you. And of course you have to develop gifts. Um, ben here, who is a brilliant pianist, almost certainly could not play like that within five minutes of being born. He has developed a gift which God had given to him. He hasn't actually given me the same gift, so I've discovered. (laughs) But he has given it to Ben. And thank goodness he's leading the worship and not me. But it's a gift. And it's a gift from God. And everything you have is a gift from God. And And then he goes on to say, they are not for you, they're for other people. God, God has given them to you for others. I don't know what those gifts are for you. It might be a talent, like playing the piano, like doing the PA. It, you may have a particular gift, a particular bent, a particular thing you like doing. It might not just be a talent, it might be time. Time is a gift. Oh, I've got some time. I could use this time for you. It may be energy. I've got some energy. I've got some strength. Maybe any of these things. It may even be a smile. Do you know I believe a smile is a gift? You bring a, I was there a, two, three days ago, I was in a building and I was in the lift going up and I was having a difficult day. Uh, the doors opened at level whatever it was and a woman got in about a bit younger than me and she smiled at me and said hello. And I have to tell you, she made my day. It was only a smile, but it was a gift she gave away to me. There's so much we have, but it's given to us. And then uh, Peter goes on to use this word. It's not, there's two words here. One is the word diakonos, which Jesus uses back in Matthew. This is another word here that he says you are stewards. Now, if you understand stewardship, you understand serving. Stewards are people who are given something. It's not theirs, but they're given it to look after. In, in the New Testament days, there were stewards of households and stewards of estates. So you, you, but they weren't yours, but you could use them and be with them and in them, but you ought to give them and look after them. So everything we have is given to us by God, and it is our responsibility to pass it on. If you've got children, small children, say you've got two small children, uh, 10 or 11 or something, and you give one of them two five-pound notes, and you say to little Johnny, here's two five-pound notes, I want you to give one of those to your sister Sarah, and you can spend them on whatever you like. And he's very pleased with this, he walks off. About a few days later, you you find out from Sister Sarah that she never got her five pounds, but Johnny has spent the ten pounds. You would be a little miffed, because you'd be saying to him, Johnny, I gave you one of those fives to steward it. It was a gift from me, not for you, but to pass on to somebody else. And that's exactly what he's saying here, is that God, it it actually uses the expression, um, the... uh, 
administration in one of the versions, administrations of God's grace. In other words, God's got all this grace and all these giftings and all these wonderful things, but he doesn't do it himself. He comes to us and he gives it to you and then you give it to them. So that everybody gets to be blessed and everybody gets to give and everybody gets to receive because everybody is passing on God's grace uh, to one another. We are responsible for the gifts, talents, time, energy, whatever it is, we are responsible for it. It's not for us, it's in order to serve. And when we all serve like the men in the canoe, nobody gets out of breath and everybody gets there quickly. That's this amazing picture of the one another's in the New Testament and the great thing about serving. And then he goes on to say, with the strength of God that God may be praised. That's the wonderful thing. That you think, oh, I haven't got the time. Oh, as soon as you start to do something in service for others, he says, God gives you the grace. God gives you the strength. You are energized by the fact that you are giving and you are serving. You start off and you think, oh, I haven't got much to give. And you do your little bit and you suddenly find it's energizing because you're contributing in an amazing way to other people. It's the serving. Serving is basically taking what you are and you laying it at somebody else's feet. It's not quite, it's done, it's the same as loving, but slightly different. It's, it's actually saying, here, I've got this, I want to give it to you. I want to make this available to you. My time, my energy, my gifting. I'm making it available to you. Now Ben, for, let's go back to Ben for a minute, since we'll get pretty, Ben on the spot here. Now Ben has a talent for playing the piano. But he also has a passion. And talent, gifting plus passion are important if you're going to do something for the long haul. So Ben has a gift for playing the piano and singing. Now he could, I suppose, have gone on X Factor. Or Britain's Got Talent. I, did you do that, Ben, before you came here? No, he didn't, you see. But he could have done, I suppose. But he's, that's not his passion. His passion is not to be rich and famous. It might be, but he's not going to be. Um, <laughs> his passion... His passion is to worship. So he takes the gift he has and the passion he has and he gives it to us as an act of service. And we become alive through it and we are blessed. And God gets the glory and the praise. Okay, four questions to close with. Oh, they moved the clock over there. That's why I'm going on a bit, Judy, because I thought it was there and then moved. Four quick questions. <laughs> the clock once was there and we had a whole season at Riverside when it went backwards. You weren't here then, I don't think. It actually, the service always ended before it started. <laughs> anyway, as an aside, quick questions. Firstly, do I serve because of, out of need or because of my gift? Both. Both. Let me just tell you, I could predict this prophecy. At the beginning of September, Melody will stand up here or somewhere and she will say, has she gone out, hasn't she? She will say, we need more children's workers. She will, because there's never enough in September. And here's the thing, will go out to us. Who will serve amongst the children? Now, there'll be some people who feel, Actually, I have a real gift, I know, of wanting to pass stuff on to other people. Don't necessarily do it very well, I'm not very experienced, but I sort of feel that's what I like to do. Now, if your gift is that, and your passion is children, put those two together, hands up, I'll come and do this, and God will bless me. Now, there's some of you who say, well... I'm not particularly good at that, but actually my children, they benefit from the children's work every week, so I could just go and help. Surely they would just want some helpers, people to lay the stuff out and do whatever they do. So I will offer to help. So one person goes because they have a gift, 
Another person goes because they have a, there's a need, and both are vitally important. Can I just say, very aside here, that I'll bet you what they need is men as well as women. I think it's incredibly important for young boys to have role models of men when they're small who teach them spiritual things. Can I just say that? So the ch children's work is not just, it's for the women, obviously, but not just for the women, it's for the men as well. So that's the first question. And by the way, putting out chairs and doing things like that is not a gift. I remember one young man here, many, many years ago, we had to put some chairs out in this hall, and I said to him, can you help me? And he actually said, it's not my gift. <laughs> I nearly wrapped the chair around his head. <laughs> I said, it sure is now. But anyway, I didn't do that. I was quietly said, well, let's just do something I'm not gifted at for a change, shall we? And we went and did it. Okay, <laughs> secondly, how do you know what I'm gifted at? The things to do is this. Number one, ask other people, what do you think I'm good at? Because you can't see it in yourself sometimes. Secondly, go and do something and see if you do it. I'll have a go at this, I'll have a go at that, I'll have a go at the other. Please don't have a go at the piano unless someone has spotted some talent. But have a go at certain things and then you discover what your gifts are. But if you don't ever try, don't ever do it, you never find it. Thirdly, should I expect to be rewarded? Answer, no. No. Jesus said, when you've done something as a servant, don't expect everyone to clap or trumpets to come out. You just did what servants do. Do you know the problem with doing a, being a servant? Is people will treat you as a servant. They will. If they say thank you, all well and good. Fantastic. But don't do it because you're expecting it. And by the way, it's very good. If there haven't been these Greeks and bumps, and you've appreciated Catherine at the end of the service, you could say thank you on the way out. Or to the person on the door, thank you. Or the people who play the music, thank you. A little thank you does help. It's, they're not expecting it, because they don't often get it. But they, are, they, they have served us, and don't crowd them out after the service. <laughs> and lastly, does everyone need to serve somewhere? If you want a healthy church, yes. If you want a healthy church, yes. If you don't want a few people to get exhausted, yes. Now let me close with an illustration I heard the other day, which is, I think is quite helpful. There are two garments that you wear in life, and you choose in the church which ones you wear. The first garment is this. It's a bib. Up on the, I wish I have meant to come up at separate times. I, anyway. um, the first one is a bib. Now a bib you wear when you're a child, when you're a baby. And some people come to Riverside, and they're new Christians. Or they're not yet Christians. They're learning. Or you're a new Christian, and you need to be fed, you need to be encouraged. That's absolutely right that you should be. We all go through that period in our lives where we're growing, we're just learning the basic stages. So you wear the bib. But there comes a point in life where you put the bib away and you put on the apron. And the apron is something you put on. And you know, as soon as you see a guy put an apron on, or you know something's going to happen. They're going to get into the kitchen. We've got a barbecue on after this, and we'll put the aprons on so we don't get dirty. And you'll know whoever's got the apron on is planning to do some work. And the question I heard asked, and I think it's a good one, is whether you're wearing a bib this morning or you've moved on to the apron. And the apron is the thing you wear when you're going to serve. Every one of us should find a place to serve, whether it's just we've seen a need and we're going to buckle in there and do something, or because we know we've got gifts and talents and energy and time and we are part of a family. You may be using it out in the workplace, you'll be using it in the community, but supremely we need to be using it in the body of Christ so the whole church works well.
And then when it all works well, no one's tired, no one's having to do too much, and everybody is being blessed because God's getting the glory. Let's close together with prayer. And Ben. There's a lovely phrase in the Anglican communion service. It says this, whose service is perfect freedom. To serve is to be free. To be served is to understand that God has graced you with so much. To serve is to recognize that what you have is not for you, it's for others. That they may be blessed and that the whole body is built up 